Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we had uh, Scott Santons, one of uh, America's leading advocates of universal basic income, making the argument in favor of a system in which the state pays everyone, whether or not they work. Uh, My old friend, Albert Wenger from Union Venture uh, U- Union Square Ventures has also been on the show. I think their thinking is that technology is resulting in the elimination of jobs, particularly AI. So the state has a responsibility towards supporting people so that they don't starve to death. There's another way, though, of thinking about this, especially in terms of the state's responsibility to citizens. Uh, Pavlina uh, Chernova is a distinguished economist and the author of a very compelling, provocative new book, The Case for a Job Guarantee. So rather than UBI, Universal Basic Income, what Pavlina seems to suggest is that the state has a responsibility towards guaranteeing jobs for everyone. Pavlina, am I vulgarizing your argument? Not at all. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Yes, the idea is that the state has the responsibility to provide at a minimum a universal basic job. And there are many reasons for this. The, we, I think we have the same diagnosis that unemployment is pervasive, that yes, technology automates some jobs, globalization costs some jobs, but the difference between my proposal and that of some of the UBI advocates is that I think that unemployment is not inevitable, that in fact, we can create jobs, even as some old jobs are being automated away, there is plenty to do. And people need jobs, they don't just need income, for many, many, many reasons. Some economists argue, both conservative and radical, that that labor is the thing that defines us in in human terms. Uh, The the economist who who, who most comes to mind here is Marx. Um, What's so special, Pavlina, about work, about labor? Why should we care about making sure that everyone can work? Is it, it's more than just economics, isn't it? That is that is right. I mean, I think it's important to get the economics right first and basically to point out that it's not just labor. It's we work, we provision for ourselves in very many ways, right? We, we care for each other. We, uh, we attend to each other's needs. So everything about life takes work. It's just in the modern world, most of that work is paid work and it's provided through the private sector. But we know that private, the the private market does not create enough jobs for all. And so what we've got is a system of guaranteed unemployment. And it's a very kind of uh, 
uh, inferior macroeconomic system to you know, ne neglect and constantly uh, maintain a proportion of the population in joblessness. And what we know from, from not just surveys, but also from looking at the cost of unemployment is that uh, people value what they do. They would like to be recognized for their work. They um, would like to work in dignified conditions with good pay and to participate in one way or another in this economy. And so, yes, there is the dignity of work. There is the social aspect of work. And we are just social creatures, social um, uh, we, we, we relate to each other on many different levels and, and the places of work are one place where we can, we can connect and contribute. And so the idea here is that we want to democratize some of these workplaces, that we want to make work not so precarious and so unsafe for many and just provide a very basic living floor for all jobs. And the job guarantee is the public option that uh, is the missing option for those who are knocking on doors but are not getting jobs, that are regularly laid off first, hired last, um, and it's, it's just a better money spent in a way, in a way than uh, maintaining unemployment. In the age of the coronavirus, you very literally present unemployment as an epidemic. Um, is there something... Uh, is there something viral about unemployment? Is it a disease? Is it a condition that's killing us off in some ways? Yes, actually, it is. It's not a hyperbole. The research on public health says that there is a very strong correlation between unemployment and suicide rates and mortality. And there are several ways in which we can think about unemployment. And first, unemployment, just looking at it from the bird's eye view, from the macroeconomic pictures, the, the way that it behaves is very much the way a virus spreads through a community. So when there is a loss of jobs in one area or if there are mass layoffs, either because of financial crisis or because of COVID, that creates a shock in purchasing power. You know, people just do not spend into the economy anymore for loss of income, and that ripples through the community and other neighboring communities, depriving others of sales and their own jobs. So there's this very inherent nature in which it just kind of ripples uh, through the economy. And then when the economy recovers very slowly, we kind of heal um, these regions by creating jobs, but we never really heal all of the distressed areas. So that's one aspect of the epidemic. The second aspect of the, the costs. We, we know that unemployment inflicts um, large costs on, on individuals, on their families, on their children as well. A lot of those costs are non-pecuniary, whether it is the isolation that unemployment brings and deprives us of our social capital and, and the very connections that we need to be reemployed, whether our children's school outcomes are effective, affected, growth stunting. I mean, I can go on and on. There are health, public health costs, there are social costs, there are political costs, political instability, economic costs. So actually, um, yes, I think it is useful to think about unemployment as something that needs to be prevented, inoculated, if you will, and the job guarantee does that. Well, you mentioned costs, and we've come to that inevitable moment, Pavlina, in, in this conversation, where 
I have to ask you, I'm obligated to ask you how, how we're going to pay for all this. The idea of a job guarantee or everyone's guaranteed by the state, not only a job, but a decent job, not driving Uber cars or cycling around town delivering other people's meals is obviously incredibly attractive. You cite some, some, some polls saying that everyone likes it, both Republicans and Democrats. Everyone likes free stuff. Who's going to vote against uh, a job guarantee? But uh, how, how does it work? How is it paid for? And how can we actually guarantee meaningful labor for everybody? Yeah, I think here it's important to have a shift in perspective and to recognize that we're going to pay for the job guarantee the same way we pay for unemployment. Um, the, the public sector is responsible for the unemployed. It's not, I don't just mean the unemployment insurance that we provide and the slew of other income support programs which are necessary to keep people afloat and provide them with some very basic standards. But we're also paying for unemployment for these other social costs that I mentioned. You know, children don't do as well in school. You know, there's loss, permanent loss in, in what we call human capital, if you will. Um, it's neglect, right? We are paying for poverty and neglect. So the job guarantee actually reduces those costs. You know, people are looking at some budget um, item, what we might need to appropriate uh, at the federal level so we can fund this program. But we are already uh, appropriating and have to deal with, with the cost of unemployment. So that's the first thing to point out. The second thing is that this is a safety net. It's a, it's a program that guarantees one aspect of economic security. So just like social security provides retirement guarantee, just like schools provide education guarantee, the job guarantee provides employment guarantee. And so it will be a federal program, not the least because uh, it needs to fluctuate counter-cyclically in the depths of a crisis. We have to ramp up employment and then we shrink it when the economy grows. So it's a federal program uh, and it's paid for the way the federal government pays for virtually any other policies using the public purse uh, and its sovereign powers to pay its bills. But how we make sure that we guarantee decent jobs is a more complicated question, obviously, uh, because we have to put our heads together to think through the work that we want to create it. And, and I think uh, it's, I think it's, we could very quickly look around and realize there are so many areas of our public and social life that have been neglected, you know, whether it is infrastructure that needs to be fixed, whether it is uh, environmental rehabilitation, whether it is cleaning toxic sites across the nation, and not to mention, you know, that the Midwest is flooded for months on end and we suffer raging fires. So there is just work to be done, plenty, probably more work needs to be done that there are people available to do it. So the job guarantee is essentially this kind of coordinating mechanism where we put the unemployed people for the public purpose to address these areas of neglect. What about the deficit, uh, Pavlina, that this would inevitably create, the economic deficit, the fact that the state would need to pay or invest huge amounts of, 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 of money, of resources, of capital in a job guarantee? I know you are part of a new economic school of thought, the modern monetary theory school, that argues that deficits aren't quite as deadly as they traditionally thought of by economists. Is that fair? 
That is fair to say. Not only that they're not deadly, they're probably required in an economy. And what MMT, uh, modern monetary theory, says is that um, the deficit is kind of a normal stylized fact in any economy. What that means is that a government, uh, when it spends more than it taxes, it actually makes a contribution to the economy. When you know the, the public sector provides contracts or pays wages, but retrieves in the form of taxes less, the difference stays in somewhere in the economy. And so that deficit has what we call a corresponding surplus. Somebody's savings account has have been have gone up. So in a, in a sense, the deficit is there. It's neither good nor bad. There are clearly ways in which we can spend. Uh, poorly or better. So, so you know, the the deficit may exist, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee the the right policy, public policy. So, what modern monetary theory school says is that um, we should not be afraid of those deficits, which are accounting deficits, but we should be concerned more with the deficits in the real economy, with the shortage of jobs, the deficits in education, the deficits in good housing the deficits in environmental care. And so we, have, we, we are so obsessed with, with, the, with this negative number on the ledger, on the government ledger, not recognizing that that actually is a contribution, financial contribution to the private sector, that we are, are, are forgetting the true deficits that, uh, that we need to be addressing. The thing that you haven't brought up that I know is central in your book is the role of the Green New Deal and climate change in the job guarantee. It seems like you see uh, the, the, the crisis of work and the crisis of environment um, in not as, as parallel crises, but as crises that are connected. Uh, do you see the job guarantee as an essential feature of a Green New Deal? Yes, I do. It, it is really the only assurance that if somebody loses their job in a fossil fuel economy, they can transition to a green economy. So whatever measures, technological or otherwise, we put in place to deliver um, a, green, a green economy, to rehabilitate our transportation, our agriculture, and all of these areas of life... Uh, People naturally feel that anxiety that they will lose their mining job and there will be no, you know, good job waiting for them on the other side. And the job guarantee is that piece, that safety net. Now, I do connect them as as uh, symbiotic uh, crises, uh, symbiotic goals, because it it makes little sense to think of a green future if people cannot live well in it. You know, let's say we have weatherized all homes, but you still cannot afford decent housing, right? We now have electric cars, but you cannot afford it to go to work, or there's just no work to pay the bills in whatever green world it is. So it, it doesn't make much sense to talk about a green future without providing economic security. On the other hand, to provide a job guarantee and, uh, and decent living for all in this current environment, which depends really on exploiting nature, then that's not really economic security either. So they are two twin problems that can be tackled at once and that the job guarantee is inherently a green proposal in the sense that it attempts to deal with the neglected uh, areas of uh, public service, including environmental work. 
But the Green New Deal is an industrial, bigger um, policy to make the transition happen, where the Green New, where the job guarantee is that safety net that will still be needed if and when we accomplish the task of the greening process. And the reason is because, again, the private sector tends to lay off workers through its natural cyclical behavior. And so even in the green economy, we're not going to banish these fluctuations, these economic fluctuations. People will lose their jobs when, when firms lose sales and profits. So we, they need a safety net even then. Obviously, much of this will depend on politics. Um, where is your movement, this job guarantee movement uh, in, in, in the United States in particular today in, in, uh, in the summer of 2020? It's certainly less familiar to many of our listeners than either the Green New Deal or the universal basic income. Uh, is it something that's beginning to catch fire? I think that it is. And we had polled the job guarantee idea a couple of times in the last two years. And even to my surprise, it had gotten overwhelming support. The latest poll from October was 78% of voters would support a program like that. Some deep red states have upwards of 70%. You know, jobs are not partisan issue. Uh, the UK also did a poll. Uh, the job guarantee was 72% um, uh, garnered that kind of support there as well. Now, the idea of direct job creation, I believe, is being mainstreamed very quickly because people realize when, when you're faced with such mass unemployment and um, you know, conventional tools are, don't you know, normally typically deliver jobless recoveries anyway, so they're not adequate. People are looking for new ideas. So I, I do not think that... Um, uh, I mean, I, I believe that in the near future, we will see job creation programs of various kind. The job guarantee, of course, has a bigger and bolder ambition that it should be a permanent policy at all times, even in the best of times. And because unemployment is a perennial feature of the economy. Now, in the current political uh, climate, in the presidential elections, there were a number of presidential candidates who had endorsed the job guarantee. Um, some of them had begun to develop uh, bills. They are different. They're not all quite the job guarantee that I'm, I'm discussing in the book. But there is appetite and interest. Um, this is not a new idea, but it is revived today. Uh, and it was revived even before COVID. And I think COVID now has really forced us to reckon with mass unemployment and trying to find some better solutions. To this problem. You need a political champion, though. Uh, UBI, of course, has Andrew Yang. The Green New Deal has, um, ha- has uh, Bernie Sanders and, 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 and some uh, high-profile people in, in, in Congress. Uh, is there a, a particular politician who, who embraces your idea? Might it be Elizabeth Warren? Or even uh, Joe Biden, I know uh, one of the, the great thinkers of uh, modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton, is, is an advisor to Biden. Um, do you see Biden as perhaps uh, staking his bid, at least in part in economic terms, around the job guarantee? 
It's not clear. He has not articulated a commitment to jobs for all in this uh, sense. He wants to be bigger and bolder than FDR. And if that is uh, what he intends to do, then he he will have to finish FDR's, Roosevelt's uh, task. And Roosevelt, as you recall, you may recall, uh, had the second Bill of Rights. And the Economic Bill of Rights started with the right to a job. So this is really... Um, this is really long overdue. Now, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, in his Green New Deal proposal, had a job guarantee. He, in, in fact, in his platform, had a job guarantee. I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has also been vocal and for the needed job guarantee. And uh, she was probably more critical in putting the job guarantee in the Green New Deal resolution. There are other... Um, uh, members of Congress, such as Ro Khanna, who have also worked on jobs programs and proposals, um, Cory Booker, and there are others. Uh, it, so there is there's actually some legislative action, and uh, sun, the Sunrise Movement, who has been very very important, the outside sort of coalitions that are putting pressure on our politicians have been also very important. So you know this is this is a process, um, just like FDR's policies. Who, which were put in place in two short years. They seemed radical and big. Uh, it took very many voices for a number of years before FDR became president uh, for those to um, to coalesce and you know to uh, to become popular enough. Um, so I think that you know we are probably in this sort of conversation right now, and I am hopeful. Finally, Pavlina, everyone, of course, should read your new manifesto. It's very compelling. The case for a job guarantee. We're all still locked inside during the pandemic. What else should people be reading to enlighten themselves, perhaps about work in the 21st century or, or, or general economic subjects? Well, you mentioned my friend Stephanie Kelton. I think everybody should absolutely read her book, uh, which is called The Deficit Myth. And that book masterfully debunks these worries and these fears around the government budget and paves a way to using the public purse uh, for the public good in a better way. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.